we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I can't imagine more uncertainty than those moments leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and those terrible moments after Jesus' crucifixion when these men and followers of Jesus had been with this man who had taught about the kingdom of God 
They saw him raise the dead to life and perform miracles and cast out demons. That man was now dead on a cross and soon would be in a tomb. I can't think of more uncertainty than those moments with those men and those women who loved that man, Jesus, so much. They thought all was for naught. until Easter Sunday. And their uncertainty vanished in all that Jesus had said and told them in advance, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna rise again. They're gonna put me to death and I'm gonna rise again. All of that came clambering back as a wave and uncertainty became certainty. They fled for their lives when Jesus was betrayed and and arrested and then they gathered together with incredible courage and the church was born. And we share in that same certainty in Jesus today. The very same in a time that feels so uncertain with the governments and nations of the world rising and falling, we have a certainty in Jesus. We are His church and we gather in spaces all across the city and homes, all across the world, not because God needs something from us, but because we desperately need something from Him. And we worship and proclaim together that we have an all-sufficient Savior in Jesus. That's why we come together. Whether you're online or in this space right now, that's why we're in this room with one another to proclaim the all-sufficiency of Jesus, our great high priest, our once and for all sacrifice. Listen, I'm going to say one thing over and over again today. Jesus is all-sufficient. Jesus is all-sufficient. I'm going to say it in a lot of different ways. I'm going to be in Second Chronicles saying that one thing over and over and over again. Because he is worthy of our testimony, of his sufficiency. And my preaching this morning is as much for him and to proclaim his excellencies as it is for us to receive it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. For your son, Lord, we don't get it. We don't get it fully. We don't understand and see the wealth and beauty of his glory and the glory of the cross and the resurrection, but help us to see and believe and follow and be your church today, living with courage and certainty that the apostles shared with us when they saw him rise again. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. If you're new with us today, whether you're in the room or online, thank you so much for being with us. We never want to take you for granted, but we're glad you're with us this morning. You can let us know that you're here by going to fpcsa.org connect. It's a simple link. Please do that now. I'll give you permission to do it right now as long as it doesn't take too long. If not, you can do it later, but we're delighted that you're with us in the room And so this morning, like I alluded, we're continuing in our series about Solomon, building a place 
of worship, and we find ourselves in 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Would you stand with me and read just verses 4 through 6 today? Verses 4 through 6. Solomon says, I am about to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God. It will be a place set apart to burn fragrant incense before him, to display the special sacrificial bread, and to sacrifice burnt offerings each morning and evening on the Sabbaths, at new moon celebrations, and at the other appointed festivals of the Lord our God. He has commanded Israel to do these things forever. This must be a magnificent temple because our God is greater than all other gods. But who can really build him a worthy home? Not even the highest heavens can contain him. So who am I to consider building a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices to him? You may be seated. Again, David had a desire and longing to build a permanent structure, the temple, that would be modeled after the tabernacle, the very same one you saw on the screen when Pastor Jimmy was teaching our kids about the veil, the very same one. And yet, God would not allow David to build it. God did allow his son Solomon to build that temple. And this is the first few years of Solomon's reign, a young man, uh, but he was... um, He was going to build the temple as his fathers desired and as God would allow him to do so. And so chapter 2 is about him getting ready and uh, him commissioning people to begin the work of building the temple. And we kind of begin to understand and get a glimpse of Solomon's theological understanding, or at the very least... The chronicler, the person who wrote this and was documenting this history hundreds of years after the fact, we capture a sense of what they understood about the nature of God, and in this case, how the temple relates to God. It's pretty fascinating, and so this morning I'm going to be talking about what they thought about God, but also what we find profoundly is that what Solomon has to say, whether he's aware of it or not, or whether the chronicler is aware of it or not, but these verses and the description of the purpose and reason for the temple profoundly points to the all-sufficiency of Jesus. The only reason that the requirements of the law to be filled out in the temple can be fulfilled ultimately is through Jesus. And so we're going to be talking about the all-sufficiency of of Jesus this morning over and over and over again. So let's understand, what does Paul think about the nature of the temple? What is its purpose, and what does it have to say about God and ourselves? In verse 4, let me read it again. He says, I'm about to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God. It will be a place set apart. So what is its purpose? It is set apart to burn fragrant incense before him, to display the special sacrificial bread, and to sacrifice burnt offerings each morning and evening on the Sabbaths, at new moon celebrations, and at the other appointed festivals of the Lord our God. He has commanded Israel to do these things not for a short period of time, but forever. Forever. There are some profound things whether Solomon is aware of it or not, that he is saying about the nature of God and our very own nature. 
Just consider the sheer volume of sacrifices that he quickly lists. One every morning and one every evening at the tabernacle or when the temple would be completed and the Ark of the Covenant would be put in the new temple. Every morning, every evening, every Sabbath, during all the special festivals, on the Day of Atonement, on not, not including the free will offerings that people could bring on their own. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. That's a whole lot of animals. A whole lot of blood spilt to atone for the sins of the people. The sheer volume of sacrifices reminds us of the gravity and terribleness of our own sin, doesn't it? Every day, every weekend, every year, sacrifices because of our sin. And how long? The duration of these sacrifices. How long were they to do these things? The law demanded this was a permanent fixture. Forever. Forever. As the people of Israel, they were to perform these sacrifices every day, every weekend, every year. Because of their sin. At least a little bit, Solomon and even the chronicler understands the bigness of our sin. It is no small thing. Our sin is not something that we should take for granted. It is a big deal. It is a significant blot on our own life. It is a dark wreck of brokenness on us. The volume and the duration of these sacrifices point to that reality. Let me ask you. When did you first realize the immensity and depravity of your own sin in your life? When was that moment? When was that moment when you had a glimpse of the glory of God? And I don't know what context that could have been in a worship service. It could have been on your own reading the word of God. For Martin Luther, he was reading through Romans, and he had this huge sense of the weight of his own sin and the freedom that he discovered through Jesus. When was it for you? For me, it was when I was 17 years old. I grew up as an MK watching my parents love and serve Jesus faithfully. They were the real deal. There was no superficiality in my parents' life. And yet, it wasn't until I was 17 that I realized and felt for the first time in my life the tragedy of my own sin, that it completely separated from me from God, and I couldn't do anything about it. I remember in my own bed at night just being just keenly aware that my heart was wretched, that I didn't want any of the right things. And even in my awareness of it, and even, in, even though I had a desire to see something happen and shift and change in my life, there was nothing on my own accord that I could do about it. I could try as I may to change the desires of my heart, but I'd always fall back to the default setting, which was ugly, dark sin, where I only cared about myself. 17 years old. That was me. When was it for you? Gosh, for Paul, man, Paul, even to the end of his life, still called himself the chief of sinners. I I don't think Paul ever shook it, the immensity of his own sin and what Jesus did on his behalf. Even now, I'm still the chief of sinners, he would say, on some of the letters that he wrote near the end of his life. In in Romans chapter 7, he said, what a miserable person I am. 
What a miserable person I am. Have you ever felt that way? And he says, who will save me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Have you ever felt that weight of being dominated by sin and death in your life? Well, every sacrifice on every day and every weekend and every year pointed to that reality for not just that other person, that other group of people, but for you and for me, for us. Tragically, willfully broken and sinful. And there's nothing we can do about it on our own accord. Of course, Paul knew the answer. We know that. He says, thank God. In verses 24 and 25 of Romans 7, the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. He alone can I have hope through the darkness and ugliness of my sin to find forgiveness, for you to find forgiveness in me, myself. The reality is, is that all of those sacrifices of oxen and goats and doves and lambs were never, ever sufficient to cover the sins of the people. Ever. They were never intended to. They didn't have the ability to. Uh, In fact, you know, sometimes we have a tendency to think, we have a tendency to think that there is the Old Testament covenant and the sacrifice of animals took care of their sin. And now we have Jesus. But that's not how the New Testament talks about the sufficiency of Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, Now God passed over or forgave those sins of old, like from David and Moses and all those people that were faithful to God. It wasn't goats and bulls and oxen that atoned for their sin. No, he says, God passed all that over. He forgave all of that sin because he knew that Jesus, in his all-sufficiency and death on on the cross, would pay the penalty of their sin. And not just their sin, but our sin. So do you understand that that moment in history with Jesus on the cross and the shedding of his blood was all sufficient to cover all of the sin of those who would follow and believe and put their faith and trust in God alone. In our case, with the revelation of Jesus putting our faith and trust in the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who was slain for our sin. Goats and oxen were never able to do that. They were only assigned to point to the fulfillment that would be in Jesus. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Now listen to these verses. 11 through 14. Under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day. Forever. Day after day. Offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Listen, Solomon did not fully understand when he wrote those words, we must do this thing as God commanded forever, that he was actually pointing to the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus, that Jesus alone would fulfill that forever requirement for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There's the resurrection right there. 
Jesus really laid down his life once for all time, and then he rose from the grave and sat down at the right hand of the Father. You can imagine, the throne room in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. When Moses would go meet with God, they, they would meet with God as God's presence would come between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, his throne And Jesus, the all-sufficient sacrifice that would forgive the sins of all time for those who would believe, would sit next to the Father on the throne. Pretty cool. That's our all-sufficient Jesus. In verse 13, it says, There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. Verse 14, listen. For by that one offering, he forever made it perfect for those who who are being made holy forever. Our all-sufficient Jesus fulfills the command to do these things forever. If we go to verses 5 and 6, again, I'm going to say this thing, this all-sufficiency of Jesus just another way in these last few moments in this text but verse 5 and 6 Solomon writes this is a letter to uh, Hiram the king of Tyre by the way he says this must be a magnificent temple because our God is greater than all other gods that's an understatement but who can really build him a worthy home I love Solomon here who can build him a worthy home? Not even the highest heavens can contain him. Not even the universe can contain God. Who am I to think that I could build a home for the creator of the heavens and the earth? And then Solomon gets to the heart of the purpose of the temple. He says, so who am I to consider building a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices to him? This is what Solomon is saying. Listen, I know God is worthy of a magnificent gold-inlaid temple. I know God is worthy of that. But at the end of the day, the temple is not for God, as if he needs it. God doesn't need a home. Even if I could build it, I can't build big enough for him to fit in one. He says, this isn't for God. At the end of the day, it's for us, because God has come to us and has made a path away for us to communion, have fellowship with him, to move towards him. Solomon says this isn't about just the glory of God, and he's worthy of our worship, he's worthy of a glorious temple, but it's about the sacrifices, the altar, and our movement towards God as God has moved towards us and made a way. There's no doubt that God is greater. He is holy, majestic, worthy of the beauty, the grandeur of the temple, that there is no God like our God. That's absolutely true, absolutely true, and Solomon captures that so well. Solomon got it right. The temple was built as a provision for the people, their need. That's why he had to build it, a pathway to symbolically atone for sin that ultimately would be fulfilled forever in Jesus so that they can move towards God to have fellowship with him. Uh, Solomon also is contrasting our God with other gods. The ancient world, uh, the gods or idols, had to be cajoled or manipulated or appeased or provided for. 
Isaiah chapter 46, and let me just tell you what goes on there, but in verses 1 through 9, it's, it's God being his satirical self, and he compares himself to the gods and idols that the people would make for themselves, and he says, listen, um, you have to carry around your gods, your idols on a cart, and when you have to take them down off the cart and set them on the ground, they're actually bowing down. What kind of God does that? You make your gods out of silver and gold with your own hands. But he says, Israel and Judah, let me remind you, there has never been a point where you had to carry me. I carried you. I've always carried you. From the very moment I knew you and called you to myself, I've always carried you. And that's what Solomon is saying. Yes, our God is like no other God. We can't build a temple big enough for him because we never carry him. We never manipulate him. We don't have to appease him. He cares for us and makes a way for us. Pretty awesome that all of that is right. There, I grew up in uh, Togo, West Africa. I had an idea of what this kind of idolatry looked like. And we would go into villages outside of our city and north of our city. And often you would walk in or drive into this, this dusty village with a few huts here and there. And you would, there would be this huge baobab tree. And if you know what a baobab tree is, look, if you don't, look it up. They're an incredible large tree with huge girth. And some of those trees would be wrapped up with a cloth, and they would have a little, a, a little plate with food on it, as if they had to provide for or manipulate this tree in order to get what they wanted to from this God. Or little graven images, actual real idols, where they would put little plates of food in front of. Solomon says, our God's not like that. Our God doesn't need anything from us. He provides for us. He is our provision. We have new gods, of course. We might not carve them out of stone or wood, but we no less carry them around. We feed them. We cajole them. We seek to find purpose and, uh, uh, um, purpose and meaning, whether it's our identity or money or family or whatever. We have our own idols. We clothe them. We feed them as if we can wrangle them enough, cajole them enough to get what we want out of life. We do the very same thing. But again, the temple was never about Solomon making a way for God, but God making a way for us. Abandon our God so that he can carry us to point the people to an everlasting sacrifice, our provision and Savior, Jesus. Always our provider. Ultimately meeting our need because of our sin and brokenness through Jesus, the all-sufficient Savior. After Jesus cleansed the temple, he was angry because they had made the temple courtyard a marketplace to make money rather than a house of prayer. He was angry. The Pharisees came to him, and the leaders in the temple at the time came to him and said, by what authority by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus replied, as he always does, with just a question that they didn't fully understand. He said, um, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. 
You remember what he told Martha as Jesus was going to resurrect Lazarus as he was on his way. Martha met him right outside the town and said, if you'd only, if you'd only had been here, my brother wouldn't die. And Jesus said, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? And she said, of course, you know I do. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Even though you die, you will live. And you remember when Jesus was with his disciples and he told them, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Our greatest provision, the answer to our greatest need, which is our own wretched sin, is the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus. Do you see him that way in your life? Have you put your faith in that man, Jesus, the Son of God, that great high priest once and for all sacrifice for us? Uh, once a month in our tradition in the First Baptist family, we remember the all-sufficiency of Jesus through the Lord's Supper, doing that together. You should have picked up one of these. If, if you've been doing this with us for a while, these don't look like the ones we've been using. Um, you have the little wafer on one side, just word of caution, open that side first. Open that side first. Be delicate. But this is how it's going to work with us today. As we proclaim that Jesus is our all-sufficient Savior, that the Son of God died for my sin and our sin and the sin of all who would believe, the very world. The way we do that here is that we are going to have a reader response, reading through some texts from the book, our letter to the Romans written by Paul, just reminding ourselves of what Christ is and who we are in Jesus. After the conclusion of that reader response, um, then we will retell the narrative of Jesus with his disciples, of breaking the bread and taking the cup, and after that, we will give you time on your own or in your family to do both elements. So you're going to wait till the very end of Romans and uh, that narrative. And then I will give you space. And they're going to begin playing our, our song of response during the Lord's Supper. And then you can, as an individual or as a family you can take both elements together when you are ready. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, let's read. Respond with me. Just follow the screens that say people. That's your part. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he who did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own. Who then will condemn us? 
can anything ever separate us from God, Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Apostles didn't understand all of that when they gathered that night. They couldn't anticipate. They knew things were tense, but they couldn't have anticipated what was to happen next. But Jesus gathered with his disciples for that last meal with one another. The scripture tells us that he broke the bread and he said, This is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then later on in that meal together, he took the cup and he said thanks and blessed it. And he said, this is a brand new covenant, a brand new covenant, not in the blood of of lambs and goats and oxen, but in my all-sufficient blood. And I have come to shed my blood for many. And they drank from that cup. In a moment after I pray, you're going to gather with your family or you're you're with your, you're just by yourself this morning in worship or with a close friend or um, I invite you to think and remember and rejoice in what Christ has done for us as the all-sufficient Savior. Let me pray, and then you can take the elements when you're ready. Father, we ask that you help us to get it. Help us to see your Son. Help us to marvel in his love and grace and his work on the cross. He's dying for us. And as your church, Lord, help us to stand in victory in his resurrection. That he has given us a promise. A promise that our sins are forgiven and we now have full access to the throne of grace. To live with certainty and confidence in a broken, hurting world. May we be your church that stands on Easter. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.